Hello everyone and welcome once again to Wednesday Night Live. My name is Ron Crawford. I'm coming to you from the Father's Church in Dallas, Texas. And it, as always, is a great privilege to be able to reach out to my congregation here uh, who are part of the Father's Church as well as to our Saints Network family in so many places around the world. Places, I might add, that God has connected us with. And I guess any ministry could say that kind of thing. Um, certainly God does add to groups of people. But in our particular case, when God began to speak with us about what we needed to be as Christians, as born-again believers, as people who believed in the, the inspiration and inerrancy of the Scripture, as people who were Pentecostal, God began to speak to us from that rooted position in the general church about serving God in a way that was um, more devoted than what we had been. And that included intercession, a great deal of intercession that included uh, our speaking uh, in diversities of tongues, not simply unknown tongues, but diversities of tongues, partnering with God in in ways that uh, were, were very much indicated in the gifts of Pentecost that were a fulfillment of the prophecy of Joel 2. And I remember those days when we first started talking about prophecy and dreams and visions. And, oh my goodness, you'd have thought we were talking about emblazing 666 on our forehead. There were men and brethren of the, of the movement who said we were going off into the new age. Remember that term? Oh, for those days, these progressives make the new age look like skim milk. But um, we were just trying to follow the Lord and his scripture and what was promised as the gifts of the Father. <laughs> if you talk about dreams and visions and prophecy, uh, back in those days, almost 30 years ago, you were branded as a, as a radical but that's what Pentecost should be. And it, so many of the deeper things of the scripture, God began to pinpoint. We used our training uh, in uh, seminary, which was largely based upon the study of the scripture, um, to delve into the deeper things of the word, things that were that were there hidden in plain sight and that's the wonder of the scriptures the bible is the living word jesus is the author and he's he's living in this word it's god breathed god still breathes if he stops breathing we're all in trouble but there are continual wonderful insights that the spirit is directing us toward in his word and we 
want to do our best to be like Samuel in this regard, to not let any of those words fall to the ground. And so, um, when I say that God added the people that are part of our Saints Network family, we've been hidden. We've not gone out advertising. We don't have a slick, of course, back in those earlier days, we didn't have websites. Well, we didn't have a slick website that we didn't have a, anything that would um, bring about any measure of notoriety. But God, God would speak to people around the world and direct them to us. It, it, it was amazing. It's a, it's a living miracle. So when I say that God has added to the Saints Network, that's what I mean. And um, I truly am thankful to God for our mission. We call it the Saints because that is a designated group regularly mentioned in the New Testament. People who are devoted to the purpose of God to seeing what he originally intended to be brought forward and that it begin to be functional. That's essentially the meaning of what saint is in the New Testament. And so we recognize that that was a a clearly defined designation within within the church and uh, although in in my upbringing we just kind of and I've said this before and it really makes sense we take all those terms and put them into a convenient doctrinal blender and we mix them all up words that we say are inerrant and inspired carefully selected by the divine author. And then we just mix them all together and say they all mean the same thing. Or we attach our own um, interpretation, our own definitions, regardless of what the original languages say. And anybody who varies from that is a heretic or a miscreant who's not being scriptural. Have you ever heard that before? But on the other hand, I know that there are a lot of people who want to move in the things of the Spirit and they don't really give two flips about what the Scripture says. If this is the hot thing, if this is the in thing, if this is what all the cool kids are doing, if this is what two or three prophets got together and found etched in a stone under a tree, well, bless God, we're going to do that because we're not going to reject the prophetic. Well, the key point for the prophetic is dying to self and really dying on behalf of what the Word says. Not one jot or tittle will pass away through eternity. It will keep showing us wonderful things. And so um, we, we, we as saints try to be true to the things that God shows us in his word. Of course, that is based upon the, the marvelous sacrifice of Christ at Calvary. 
And we, we are born again only through him and his blood. But he redeems us to the Father. And boy, oh boy, our church is called the Father's Church. When we begin to talk about all the things that the Scripture says through Jesus about the Father, oh, we weren't talking enough about Jesus. Well, what did Jesus say? I didn't come to do my own work, but him that has sent me. Seems like Jesus talked a lot about the Father. That was his, that was his mission. And he redeems us to the Father. He is seated at the right hand of the prophetic at the throne of the Father. He ever lives to make intercession for us that we will fulfill the will of the Father. So we, we want to be sons of the Heavenly Father, heirs and joint heirs with Christ. So that's kind of a nutshell of what God has called us to be and to do. And there are people groups around the world, uh, this remnant, this residue, who are willing to serve God according to his word in this way. And it would be wonderful if all of the church would do this. But, you know, you have to have pioneers. You have to have forerunners. And then people come along. It's one of the things about the movement I was in uh, growing up and still cherish. Um, it became something that felt it had it all and um, if anything new came that was different from what we've done, this, the last words of any church, we've never done it that way before. And just kind of watch and see if something lasts. I understand the security of that, but it's also a death knell to any measure of pioneering work. And you gotta you gotta determine whether you're gonna be a pioneer or a settler, but you better keep having pioneers. The day a society stops inventing is the day that it falls into a second class identity. And uh, the thing that made America wonderful was, of course, our being founded as uh, an in God we trust. I know that came into the coins later, so I'm a history buff, so don't check me on that. But freedom to seek God is what this nation was founded on. And in, in a rebuke of the 1619 Project, this nation was not founded just so there'd be a place for slaves. It was a religious freedom pursuit. And I'm not ignoring the sins of the past, but to say anything other than that this is one nation under God is, um, is a fallacy. But that being our base, this nation became great because of the innovations, because of the inspiration and creativity because of the, of the ways that God protected and preserved. But God is a God of the new thing. He will do a new thing, he says. 
And the way we partner with him in that is by staying close to him and praying. Not besieging him with our own request, but praying in the spirit according to the will of God, his mysteries, and then being careful to interpret, as the scripture says, what the spirit would reveal about what we're praying for. And that guides us into the word and is uh, to do and to teach. As we do that, God shows us things in the word and a and a panoply of wonderful insights that were there all along become readily seen and that's invigorating but if you preach the same old story the same old way and you don't go any deeper in the word what are you accomplishing you know resting on your blessed assurance that's uh that's a prescription for dying out, be a white and sepulcher. I did not intend to say all of this at the beginning of this broadcast, and we will now uh, proceed into what the Lord was uh, sharing with me to share with you. But as we do that, I do want to remind our Saints Network family, that we have a seminar, our fall seminar here in Dallas, September 12th through 17th. It's called Rama, R-A-M-A-H. And um, we encourage you to go to the Saints Network website and register for that, whether you're going to be here in attendance in the natural or whether you're going to be joining by live stream. We really want you to register uh, it will be beneficial for you to register um, we, we're not charging anything so I'm not pushing registration to, to, to gain money we have resisted that um, general church mentality that you know it's always and I, I'm not faulting anybody who does that God bless them but we've always believed that freely we receive freely we give if we are a communications group and we're being given the meat of the word to distribute to the saints how dare we even consider charging people for that now we welcome offerings we welcome first fruits gifts in obedience to the lord you know the apostle paul said hey we're giving you mnemonicos meat you need to be giving us financial support that's what the apostle paul said that's what he meant your tithe belongs to your local church but if you're considering this your local church everybody needs to be tithing don't hold back what belongs to god because that's your seed into the future the tetheme leads you into the thesaurus according to the scripture it's the don't withhold the tithe. Bring it into the storehouse that there would be meat in the house. And, and that's, uh, that's a sowing forward. A tetheme was what was called uh, what, what you become ordained in. It's the beginnings of what God wants to do. So we look at the tithe backwards. We think, oh, 10% on what we've gained. 
Well, that's a good way to tabulate. But you give in obedience to God in the tithe, you're sowing forward. And your offerings sow forward. And your first fruits sow forward. So the tithe belongs where God has planted you. But if you consider this the place you're planted, the tithe belongs here. The offerings and the first fruits, pneumatikos gifts, belong to, through the directive of God, to the place that is feeding you. And um, not just snacking, not just gorging on the latest thing to come down the pike, but hopefully we're giving you things from the scripture that will never grow old, that will never need to be adjusted or amended. Added to, built upon, line upon line of Scripture? Yes. But anyway, we're not asking for registration fees, but we want you to register. It would be very helpful for you. There are things that we will be sending, I I won't promise what, to those that are registered. So please do it. It would be helpful if you did it by this weekend. But that's for everybody. Those who are part of this body here, those who will be attending in, per, in person, and those who will be um, remotely joining. So uh, this coming Sunday, I'll be talking about a fast that we're going to be encouraging our Saints Network to participate in that will begin on the day after the holiday, next Tuesday. And it, it will be basically a seven-day fast that concludes on the eighth day with those who are here for the, 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 the newcomers gathering, which is basically now newcomers and people who are regulars who, who want to be in agreement and acclimate to what God's wanting to do on the week to come, to prepare for ministry for that week, that kind of thing. And we'll explain more about what that is regarding some more factors of what Gilgal represented and what it meant during Samuel's day and what it should still mean in principle for us. Uh, You know, Jesus was crucified at Golgotha, which is a, a root derivative of Galal, which is Gilgal. And that that principle is a continuation of having our hearts circumcised before the Lord, um, which we need to continually do. I'm glad you don't have to do that physically, but spiritually you do. Otherwise, you become stiff-necked, and um, we don't want that because that resists what God is saying. So we'll be talking during seminar a lot about what God originally intended for his people when they came into the land. And it's far different than what most people would think it is. And it's certainly far different than what actually happened. But um, we're, we're in a position right now of breakthrough and harvest. And we are being led into many new places around the world that need the message of what God 
wanted his people to be when they began to establish their land of promise, the place of their inheritance. And um, that's what God intended. Go into all the world, preach the gospel, the gospel of the kingdom, I might add, to every creature. When that's happened, then will the end come. Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, the othermost parts of the earth. Um, Jesus' words to the woman at the well in John 4. There's coming a day, and now is, when God is not going to be worshipped in this mountain or only in Jerusalem, but for those who will proscuneo before him, God searches for that throughout the world. That's where we are. That's the Gentile church. That's the tabernacle of David, according to what the scripture says. We'll look some more next week at what that really means in ways we've not seen before. But that's all inherent with uh, what God spoke through Samuel and what he therefore wanted to do in the establishment of the kingdom. So, just prepare. Uh, we're going to give you some things in this message, if I ever get around to it, for you to be in prayer about this week. But Sunday, uh, holiday weekend, boy, that's daring. I'm going to be speaking about what this fast would really require of us and what God wants to accomplish through us, at least what he's saying of course, we know when God says something, the the myriad fruits of that are out of whatever the no eye has seen, ear has heard, neither it has entered into the heart of those, uh, the glorious things that God is going to do for those who love him. Uh, God is good about that, but we just need to obey. To obey is better than sacrifice. So... Just know that that is coming. So, we're going to look at a rather odd passage that is set during the days of um, Samuel and Saul and David. Saul had become king. He should have been working more closely with Samuel who loved him, but he struggled. And he struggled because of the people. He struggled because of the demonic influences within the land. He struggled with the burgeoning role of being a king when he'd never been trained to do that. He was a first fruits of this. And he struggled because of the challenges that were within him. He struggled because of his um, of his upbringing with Benjamin. And one of the saddest stories was uh, in the days of the judges was what happened uh, with the tribe of Benjamin and those sons of Belial that did unspeakable, heinous things. Benjamin was almost destroyed. And uh, then they were allowed to repopulate their tribal inheritance 
I think if some wisdom had been um, attended to uh, when uh, that was happening after the tribal wars, things might have been a whole lot different. But um, Benjamin became wealthy uh, beyond the rest of the tribes because they suddenly, these individuals were wealthy beyond the rest of the tribes because out of the thousands that had been killed, now there were only 600 family units that were going to take possession of that. So they all became wealthy property owners. And um, Saul was from that heritage. It's hard to it's hard to describe what the mindset of his father Kish was and the upbringing that Saul had. But I dare say that after you survive such a cataclysmic thing and the if there was a measure of accountability for what that tribe had supported, I, I know that even we do a lot of ministry in, in Europe. There, there's a lot of, dare I say, shame uh, in nations because of what was done during the 1930s leading into World War II, particularly with the Jewish people, but there were many other thousands, and I'm not diminishing that, but there were many other thousands of people who were massacred and killed the carnage and the the recoil shame of that produces behaviors that are in some ways not logical at some point you need to be forgiven and enter into a new realm but even today in our country there are people who are doing ridiculous things that are not beneficial to anybody and probably are detrimental to everybody because they are looking back to the past, to the far distant past, and trying to make this nation feel as if it, it is a miscreant creation. And there are lots of people who just dwell in a backward, downtrodden mindset instead of that let's go let's go forward uh, mentality so Saul was raised in in this kind of an environment and you can see that even here he was head and shoulders above everybody God put his finger upon the young man and told Samuel some really strategic prophecies um, this is the one I want anointed as king. But Saul struggled. He hid among his father's wealth. He he didn't want to lead. He he would have. I think he would have done anything other than to accept that mantle of leadership. And he did some good things. But he struggled within because of a lot of factors. I mentioned some of them. And um, 
the the essence of what God wanted for his people when they came into the promised land was dictated in Deuteronomy when God said, okay, through Moses, you're going to go into the land and I don't want anybody doing what's right in their own eyes. Uh, You do what's right before me and I will give you the land and when all of the enemies are driven out and when you have established places of of, uh, worship to me, then I will bring about a place where I will where I will dwell in the Nuka place, which we know would subsequently be Jerusalem. But it was it was uh, dependent upon the people not doing what was right in their own eyes. God said that specifically, and then. What do we read? What are the days of the judges known for? The people did what, whatever was right in their own eyes. And in the days of the young boy Samuel, um, there was no breakthrough word that came. Why was that? Because you can't have parats unless you have parats. And if you're not standing faithfully in the gap, how can you expect God to give you breakthrough words? The breakthrough words were what were missing, according to what the scripture says. But that all goes back to what does God say you're supposed to not do? Don't go after what's right in your own eyes. Commit your eyes to God and do what he says. So that that was the essential thing that God wanted to establish among the people. And it goes back to something far before Abraham. It goes back to the Garden of Eden, where the whole idea of, hey, you know, if you disobey God and you partake of this tree of the knowledge of Tob and Ra, then your eyes will be opened and you'll become like God. You'll become as Elohim. It was about the eyes. The enemy wanted the eyes of God, his ways, his seven spirits, his lamps, to be divided, to be not regarded by the people of God. And, you know, the eyes of the Lord see Tob and Ra, Proverbs fifteen thirteen. They're everywhere perceiving the evil and the good. Um, but the objective is to do the good. The problem is that the enemy wants you to use those eyes for things that utilize the good, but go after 
the raw that's along the pathway of righteousness. And that's what the children of Israel did when they came into the land. And that's what they did for a long period of time during the days of the judges. And subsequently, they were, they were subservient to the enemy groups that they were supposed to have driven out. Now, this scripture that we're going to look at, and I have talked away our time today. I, I may go a little bit later. We'll see. First Samuel 18 we're going to talk about something that is, I think, apparent for us, but largely misunderstood in the overall viewpoint of what God, um, of what God wanted in the, uh, on behalf of what we're talking about right here. First uh, Samuel 18, beginning at verse seven. Now, Jonathan and David had gone out to war, and they had a great victory over the Philistines. Saul had commissioned this. So David comes riding back in after Jonathan had become a, a literal brother with David. Jonathan, there in the beginning of chapter 18, um, gave uh, his cloak and um, his robe, his bow, his girdle, his sword to David. I mean, he honored him. It was really a token of acknowledging him as a brother, as a, as a really an adopted son of the king, according to Jonathan. Now, some people get off on his soul being knit and you have people that break off soul ties and things like that. I understand that concept. But here, this meant that they were in alignment together. And God was blessing. Um, so David comes riding in. And um, verse 7, The women answered one another as they played and said, Saul has slain his thousands, and David his ten thousands. And Saul was very wroth. The saying displeased him. And he said, They have ascribed unto David ten thousands, and to me have ascribed but thousands. What can he have more but the kingdom? And Saul eyed David from that day forward. And it came to pass on the morrow that the evil spirit from God came upon Saul. And he prophesied, Saul prophesied in the midst of the house while David played with his hand as at other times. And there was a javelin in Saul's hand. And Saul cast the javelin, for he said, I will smite David even to the wall with it. And David avoided out of his presence. This was the second time the javelin was uh, sent against David by Saul. And Saul was afraid of David because the Lord was with him and was departed from Saul. <sighs> what a story, huh? What does this really mean? 
Well, I think there are a lot of factors here that we would do well to understand. And we're going to talk about what it means for Saul to I, David. But I think that it was God's plan all along for there to be places under the directive of Samuel where young men and dare I say women would learn about the place of the Hesteme where they were, whether that was Gilgal or whether it was Bethel or whether it was Carmel or whether it was any number of specific places where notable things were being done in the presence of the Lord. The people were to take responsibility for those places, but they were to go and they were to minister to God. And for the people to meet with God and to prophesy and to be moved upon by the Spirit, that's what God wanted because that establishes relationship and from that then, authority is manifested and from that then, if you're faithfully standing in those gaps, God will give you breakthrough words. It was supposed to come through the prophet. Somebody that was designated by God to be a vocalization of what God was saying throughout. And that person then would commit before God the nation to do what God says. And that means that there has to be work, the work of the ministry, of worship, and of learning God's ways, fellowshipping with him in enclaves throughout the nation. That's one of the hardest things that we've had to do here. Because most churches, the people come, I'm not faulting whether they're good people or not, and they expect the pastor and the worship team to do all the work. They're just along for the ride. They're spectators. In many churches, man, the budget for their music department is exorbitant because that draws the people. It's kind of like a, a Holy Ghost concert. Now, many of those same people go out to soundstage and to other places to hear uh, top-notch world musicians. But, you know, it, the point, though, is let, let somebody else do it. Like the people said, like the elder said with Moses, hey, let's meet with God here. Let's meet with Elohim and you come on up the mountain. No, 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 no. We don't want to go. You go up for us. In some ways, that's right, but in other ways, it's wrong. And the people one day rejected God's plan. And they said, you know what? We need a king. Um, because you, prophet Samuel, you're going to require things of us. We don't want to be accountable to that. We're used to doing what's right in our own eyes. Just give us a king and uh, we'll be happy. That was not God's plan, but God in his mercy was going to work with Samuel to fulfill his plan regardless of the hijinks of the people. And that's what Saul was supposed to do. Saul was supposed to be that person who benefited incredibly from 
these prophetic outposts. How many times do you read in the scripture where Saul encountered people coming up, or going up, or coming down from that place where the people were being taught the ways of God? And Saul prophesies. He falls out. He, he's naked and open before God in complete humility and subjection to the Spirit. He sent soldiers to kill David at Naoth at Ramah. And those soldiers all fall out in the Spirit. And then Saul comes. He falls out in the Spirit. So Saul was made to minister on behalf of what God's plan was. The problem was that the other responsibilities he didn't process well. And he still was subject to the generational problems of people doing what was right in their own eyes. He he honored that. And I'm not I'm not shortchanging this. You know, even in the New Testament it says we walk by faith, not by the natural sight. And so it doesn't surprise me that here you have Saul eyeing David. Some of you have already gone ahead and you've seen that this is the only usage of this very of this very um, variation of ayin, which is the eyes. But this is a variation that means I am going to utilize a God-given capacity, but instead of looking for the tobe, I'm going to look for the raw. I'm not going to view what's happening with David and my son and Saul had a history of mis miscasting what Jonathan was doing. You can read that story for yourself. Um, but I'm I'm going to misinterpret what's going on here. And to me, Saul was supposed to establish something then that would be built upon by sons. Now, David would, would be one that then came about. And you're supposed to build upon what Saul did. One puts a 1,000 to flight. Two puts 10,000 to flight. These influenced women were singing that Saul was fulfilling the 1,000 and David was fulfilling the 10,000. Now, in biblical mathematics, that's right. I keep saying that David was wise. He acted wisely, and I believe he did. But you have to also remember that the, the victor writes the histories. And David's wisdom here was written largely when he was in power. And that's just the truth of the matter. So you can whitewash a lot of things when you've won the war. And um, for me, for me, David could have helped matters along there. But that's another story. We're talking about Saul and his eyeing David. Now, this, uh, if you will look, you'll plainly see, even those of you who have invested a large amount 
to buy the King James with Strong's or whatever version you have with Strong's, you'll see that this word awan, only the variation only used here comes from ayin. But then if you will look further, like at its CWSB, you'll see that awan, A-W-A-N, is very similar in the Hebrew and in English transliteration to awan, A-W-O-N, which is iniquity, which is twisted purpose. So here you have the eyes that were supposed to be set upon knowing God, gaining his wisdom, gaining his vision, as opposed to following a raw standpoint, which would then be iniquity, which is not fulfilling purpose, twisting purpose. Iniquity was found in Satan. Why? Because here you have it. Um, the ways of God, Satan started to want to use for something other than what the eyes of the Lord wanted. And iniquity was found. It was a twisting of purpose, yes, but a twisting of how that purpose was indicated through and with the eyes of God. Do you see that? This is a fresh revelation here for us. And so, what is this evil spirit from God? What is this raw spirit from God? In one place it's from Elohim, in another place it's from Yahweh. Well, it's simply this. Saul was operating in authority. He was anointed as a king. That was not going away. The gifts and callings of God are without repentance. Now the Spirit of God could depart from Saul, but Saul was still the king. God put him there. That's another topic to talk about, but not for today. And so when Saul utilizes his kingly authority and the anointing that went there and he determines that he's going to use his eyes to go after iniquity to pursue the raw well somehow then God is not going to withstand and the angel comes to accentuate that decision was Saul's decision and the answer is found right here with Saul eyeing which is the which is basically the heart of iniquity which is a satanic playground but God's king was there and God sent his angel to accentuate this scenario. Saul was still the king. Saul could have turned back to God, but he didn't. That's an unwritten history, so we can't extrapolate too far on this. It's kind of like another instance where you had uh, King Jehoshaphat and Ahab. You remember this story? They gathered together at the gates of Samaria because they were going to go to war with Syria. They were fighting with Syria. 
Um, 1 Kings 22 speaks about this. And um, God allowed a lying spirit to go into the mouths of the prophets of these kings. Well, why would God do that? Because here again, you had anointed kings who had set themselves to do something that really wasn't what God wanted in the way God wanted it. And they gathered to themselves prophets who were just going to say whatever was convenient. And they were already lying. And so here you have a kingly office, two kings, really, and you have a prophetic office. And God allows, through their calling and through their authority and through their anointing, for their miscreant use of their gifts to be accentuated. Isn't that weird? How God does that? What would God's purpose be? I would think that it would be, first of all, to honor what he put in place, whether it's good or bad at that time. But the end result would be to make the person come to a realization that, hey, I'm off the mark here. I've got to turn back to God. I've got to repent. And, you know, there were instances of this. Hezekiah is a great example, even though Hezekiah really did some really good things for God. But when he turned his face to the wall. I don't know whether Don Potter's uh, CD was playing at that time or not. He turned his face to the wall and God extended his life, sent the prophet back to him. So God's not sending demons. God is simply accentuating people's callings, their anointings, perhaps to showcase the error of their way for the purpose of them turning to God and making things right, because God is always about redemption. I have seen people, I've said this in the past, where good people do bad things. People in ministerial positions just not needing any help from Satan. The, the decisions they make are just horrific at times. I'm not saying God sent angels to accentuate their behavior. I think on their own, those scallywags could do things that were just abominable. David even talked about those that were anointed that came against him. But God put in David's heart to his credit that he wouldn't touch God's anointed. So here we have this. And it's about the eyes. Do you see that? God says, don't do what's right in your own eyes. The days of the judges, we're going to do what's right in our own eyes. Saul's particular tribe did that on steroids. 
Saul's anointed king. He's over his head. Didn't have to be, but he was. And here we see him eyeing David. Now, I could offer some words of counsel as to what Saul should do, what he should have done. But it's easier said than done. Um, and I, I have to hasten on here. But look there at, first of all, the eyes. Remember the days of the judges. Remember what God was trying to do through Samuel. Um, Samuel's job was to keep the lamp burning, which is the eyes of God. And hopefully to accentuate that ministry throughout the places that God had designated and from that then the breakthrough that God intended it didn't quite happen that way but that's God's principle and it's still God's principle for today so how does this apply to you well in James 5 verse 9 James, Pastor James, admonishes the flock not to grudge against one another. Grudge not. Now this is the word stenazo, which comes from stenos, which comes from histeme. Now how does this align with what we've just been talking about? Well, let's look at it from the base. Histeme is what Christ paid the price for at, at Calvary because the cross was formed by a stake of ownership in Histeme. That's indisputable. Bible purists, look it for yourself. And the Histeme is indicative of what God has placed within us as well as what God has placed in locations where he will send us through the cross, where the Father will send us. These are unique capacities, perhaps uh, variations of the deposits of the glory, and where to welcome the kingdom there, within ourselves, and the place where God assigns us. We've studied about this a lot. So that's the root of this word. Stenos literally means to narrow or to clarify. And if we hire a stenographer, we want that person to clearly write out, to depict a document. And one thing I've learned is that sometimes conversations happen between people, even good ones, and people emerge from that conversation with a totally different depiction of what happened there. Oh my goodness, how many times as pastor have I seen this? And, and I think, did I not make that clear? Even if I reiterated it two or three times, why is this person interpreting it this way? Because we have the proclivity to perceive things through our own our own interpretation. And that should not be. 
so if if you stenos you are functioning in a measure of meticulous interpretation you want what that histemi is indicating to be specific and then stenazo is for you to insist on that happening to engage who you are to fulfill this identity and intent of God. We find in Mark 7, 34, when Jesus was ministering up there on the shores of the Sea of Galilee to uh, the deaf and dumb guy, um, Jesus lifted his eyes, imagine that, to heaven. And he sighed. This is Stenazzo. He was appealing to the anointing of God in that place, the calling and the anointing of God in that person, and what he was supposed to be, ephatha, is what he says, be opened. And that is a teaching in itself. Uh, but he sighed. Mark eight twelve. those religious numbskulls were pressing Jesus for a sign and Jesus anastenazo uh, he sighed because he was adhering not to not to respond to these guys in a raw way but to stay focused on what his mission was what he was there to do and only what he was there to do I love that this word speaks in Romans 8.22 about creation groaning. This is stenazo, creation where histeme deposits are placed, whether it's humans or nature itself, is wanting the histeme to be fulfilled according to exactly what God wants. And in verse 26 of Romans 8, the spirit within us, which prays in, un, in tongues, groans, stenazo. So, I see this as an, a, a New Testament demonstration of aligning yourself with the eyes and the ways of God for you personally and for your ministry. Um. It's, it's very important then that we don't grudge against one another. That's what Saul did. Now, we're also not to judge one another, but here, this is just, you know, you've got the sighs of the Lord. You've got the groanings within which cannot be uttered. You've got the uh, the creation groaning. Those are power words, aren't they? Intercessors ministering as sons of the Most High, demonstrating His will. Oh, yes. And what in the world is James saying? Don't stenazo against one another. Because the same power and vitality 
that you can demonstrate on behalf of the purity of God, on behalf of God's ways, God's callings, God's anointings, you can turn that and pursue the raw. What a thing. Bring that back to the Garden of Eden, recognizing that the perversion of the eyes is commensurate with iniquity. This is what Satan did. This is what that serpent was selling. And subsequently then, the eyes of the Lord, which sees the raw and the tobe. Here's a good question for all of us kiddos. Would there be raw had there not been rebellion? Well, I think that in eternity, after Satan is locked away forever, we'll still have the raw of what is not fulfilling a purposeful demonstration of worship to God. That which has not been developed, that which has not been created for his glory. We'll always confront that with the tobe. And we must continually seek the tobe, seek what's right in God's eyes. So this is a principle that wasn't created at the time of the rebellion. It was, boy, was it developed at the time of the, de- of the rebellion. Yes, it was. But even today, we have callings, we have anointings, We should be seeking God. We should be on our face before him. But we've got to understand the ways of God, whether people below us in authority are honoring it or not. Oh, yeah, there's no sin in getting aggravated with people that won't do what's right. Hey, Jesus did that. Jesus did that. For those of you who still recoil at the fact of the smiling Jesus doing anything that would confront sin in a in a volatile way you explain the turning of the tables you explain when he looked to his disciples and said how long do I have to be with you there are other issues that are in the scripture if we just maybe we don't underline them but they're there so you can recognize that something's wrong But you can take that next step and you can eye somebody. And you can try to utilize giftings and identities that God gave you. And instead of you using them in humility for his ways, you turn them for evil. That's what the tribe of Benjamin with those SOBs, sons of Belial, they were double SOBs. They were sons of Benjamin and sons of Belial. We've got to be careful because doing what's right in God's eyes is such a wonderful prospect. This is what God wanted for his people and still does. We should be partnering with the ways of God, his seven spirits. But along that road, we can easily focus on the raw 
and eliminate instead of teaching. You know, to me, Saul could have drawn David and Jonathan in and recognized, okay, you're a son. Whether David would have been a son-in-law in that environment instead of Saul arranging a marriage, is we don't know. But he could have treated him with authority, but they would have to stay in rank. Um, Saul recognizing what his limited role was, whether anybody else does. It, it is a point of humility to be an Elijah, to be a Samuel. It's good to be the king, but it's a point of humility to be a godly king. We're supposed to be kings and priests, mind you. When others come along and benefit from what you have provided in obedience to God, and they slay the tens of thousands, and they don't recognize what has gone on before. There's challenges <clears throat> all around, aren't there? But we'll make it, won't we? But here, as we consider the days of the judges, what God really wanted, and here in the first anointed king, here is a perversion of the eyes toward iniquity. And I believe that God allowing these angels that he commissioned to come was to accentuate what Saul was doing with the mind toward him finally surrendering to God and becoming what he was supposed to be. Now, what about this? Could he have done that after Samuel anointed David? Well, David and Jonathan should have been the successors. So that wouldn't have wasted the anointing. It wouldn't have screwed anything up. Then you might have had two anointed groups, which is what God wanted with Moses and Joshua, which is what he wanted from Elijah and Elisha, which is what he wanted. And we've talked about this, that principle. So it wouldn't have messed anything up. But it's not like God was making Saul do bad things. But the book of Hebrews tells us that God loves to chasten his sons. In fact, if you're going to be a son, whoever God loves, he's going to be chastening. He's going to be refining. He's going to be training, not cruelly, but for the benefit of the people. Wow. Could that have been God's motive there? Oh, undoubtedly. Remove the could with yes. What about those Jehoshaphat and Ahab and those false prophets? 
a lying spirit. Well, they were already lying. This, this being didn't come down and make them lie. They were just putting a bit of gusto behind the lies these people were already telling. <laughs> I know this is a, a brain twister for many of you, but it's the Word of God. And it, it's an answer for things that maybe are is very puzzling. So these next days, let's all go before the Lord and say, let my eye be single and let it be devoted to you. If there are ways that I'm grudging or eyeing somebody, cleanse me of that. It's, it's not going to do any good. It's not going to eliminate the problem. No matter, in fact, it'll create more problems, a big one for you. So let's recognize that the Spirit is always striving for the ways of God to be completed. Partner with that. Go with that. Creation is doing that. Go with that. Jesus did that. Be what he was and what he is. But if there are any ways that our eyes are using our giftings and anointings for iniquitous purposes, we need to repent and get right with God. Okay, we went over time. I promised I would. So there you have it. Thanks for joining today. Um, let's be in prayer about this these next few days. And... Let's get ready for the holiday weekend. We'll be here on Sunday. We'll look forward to meeting with you and um, look forward to a week of fasting next week. Powerful things. God has ordained this. It's good to be walking with him, isn't it? I speak blessing over you, provision, favor, healing, health, well-being. Walk with him. Know him. He loves you. Thanks for joining. God bless. Goodbye.